Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what did you do this weekend? Oh, well, I had the privilege of going to see David Eagleman speak at the Decatur Book Festival. And uh, I'm talking about science, hunkiness, all rolled together in one package. Is he hunky? No, he's not really hunky. But, you know, the media sort of plays yeah. that image out, I suppose. Yeah, I, I would, you know, he's, he's an attractive guy. He's up there with, like... Uh, Brian Cox, not Brian Cox, the old grizzly actor, but Brian Cox, the young cosmologist in terms of like, you know, you're sort of if they had like a teen magazine for science, yeah. uh, 12 year old science geeks, Eagleman would be on the cover every other month. Yeah, it'd be like saber tooth tiger beat. Yeah. Or something like that. <laughs> Definitely. He he would fulfill that role. And he's got fancy jackets. But more more importantly, he's got fancy thoughts. Yes. That's the most important part. And, and he's great at relating these thoughts to a general audience, which uh, we all love. I mean, because that's, that's the whole thing. It's like scientists can do their own their own thing in a bubble all day. And it's great. But somebody has to bring that knowledge to the outside world. And it's great when the scientists can do it themselves. Eagleman's also been on um, Colbert Report. Yeah. People have probably seen him there. He, he's all over the place, a total media darling. Yeah, and we've actually talked about him before in a podcast about possibilism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, he is, he's actually sort of founded this idea of yeah, possibility. Yeah, that's what I actually, yeah, I interviewed him about that. Yeah, um, yeah. He took a few minutes out of his time to talk to me. But in this podcast, we're talking about a little something called free will. What? Yeah. Free will, which is of, which is like the, one of the big ideas of human culture and what it is to be human. The idea that obviously we make choices in life and those choices lead us where we need to be. And we, we recently recorded and uh, published an, an episode about decision fatigue. Mm-hmm. So, so this kind of plays nicely with that or in a, in a way kind of conflicts with it at times. At times, yeah. But be- sometimes they sort of meld together. Yeah. Because in that, we were talking about how we we're, we have so many choices in any given day, little choices and big choices, that it just wears us out. But but there's we, a theme here. Yes. But there's finite mental energy. Finite mental energy. Which yeah. plays into, as we'll find out, free will. Yeah. Or uh, our perception that we have free will. Yeah. Uh, in, at, at heart here, we have a very old idea, too. The idea, uh, a very old philosophical, religious discussion of whether we are in charge of our own destiny, if we're really the captains of our soul, or nice, nice. yeah, like Invictus, or if we're destined to do things, if our fate is outside of our own control. Now, in the old days, it was kind of a, a question of of whether we were the self moving soul, or it's the gods, or the fates, or some other force is uh, is writing the book, and we're just uh, carrying along with it. But today, the discussion is steeped in neuroscience, with a nice sprinkling of philosophy or a layer of. <laughs> cake of philosophy on top. Well, you can't but, uh, separate the philosophy from this, right? right? This is just one of those subjects that, yeah, you can you can pour a bunch of neuroscience on and you should because it's pretty illuminating. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it still is this, it's still a big question mark. And, and that's what's really exciting about it, too, is that in some of these older philosophical arguments, they've been around forever, but now we have these new ideas in neuroscience, mm-hmm. these new uh, findings. It's forcing the philosophers to like kind of rush in and make sense of things. And they're kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Kind of having fun with the idea here, but it's kind of like if you have like a fire department mm-hmm. and it hasn't been a fire in town 
in years and years and years. And then there's finally a little blaze and all these old guys are like, yeah, let's get in there and do it. In a way, it's kind of like fresh philosophical territory in that they get to tackle old arguments, but in light of new scientific discoveries. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that, but particularly in the context of David Eagleman's Incognito. Yes. Uh, this is his new book, The Secret Lives of the Brain. And Eagleman claims that the brain is running the show incognito, hence the title, and that this consciousness, this I that we feel, that I, Julie, mm-hmm. um, really is just a bit player to the vast network of our neural circuitry. Okay. Okay. Um, so he, this is a quote. He says, we are not at the center of ourselves, but instead, like the earth in the Milky Way and the Milky Way in the universe, far out on a distant edge, hearing little of what's transpiring. So in a simple sense, instead of going with the idea, I am my brain mm-hmm. or and it's more like I am a character in the story that is told by my brain. Or something to that effect. Well, um, yeah, and he uses the analogy of a newspaper, like your brain sort of gathering all of this data and doing all of the legwork. Um, you know, the, the the brain sort of is like these localized populations, sort of like you you see in a newspaper, these local communities, and all of a sudden the the headline gets served up in mm-hmm. your brain, and you, the reader, I take all the credit for the headline. Like okay. you read it and you think, oh, yeah, I, I knew that. But in fact, he's saying that these these ideas, these um, concepts, our choices are really just a, a result of this activity, activity bubbling in our brains for sometimes years, you know, sometimes months, hours um, coming up with these concepts. It is not uh, the eye saying, oh, yeah, I had that idea. And it, we're going to talk about that uh-huh. how because right now that sounds really abstract. But we're going to talk about some studies that bear this out at a physical level. It also makes me think of The Daily Show to a certain extent, because if you if you just tune into The Daily Show, as I'm sure a lot of a lot of you guys do, uh, it's easy to think, oh, man, that John Stewart is a really funny guy. He's so clever. And uh, he just, is. And he, and he is. He's a very clever guy, very funny guy. But that show is coming at the end of the whole day of of writing a uh, team of writers, cracking it out. 14 hour working, days, 14 hour 20 days. people around the yeah. table. Yeah. And, you know, just working, working, putting all this work into it all for just a few minutes of payoff. Mm -hmm. But if you're not privy to that information, it's just like, whoa, look at that. That guy's that guy's awesome. Yeah. And this analogy, the other John John Stewart is the eye of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And John Stewart is an illusion. And that he is. (laughs) So, okay, what do we do when we have consciousness or I as a bit player on the sidelines? What do we do with this information? Well, uh, we could freak out, I guess. That's one. That's one way. (laughs) Some Um, people are. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, uh, I mean, it, it really turns everything we sort of believe on its head. We really want to believe in this idea of the self-moving soul and the idea that we're making choices and getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we're just this kind of surface illusion on a, on a sea of cognitive depth, it's, it's really kind of hard to swallow. It, it makes you, it, I mean, uh, Daniel Dennett, for instance, he, he argues that we kind of have to tweak the language a little bit to make sense of it all. Oh, taking the stance that we need to redefine what free will is. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting enough, Freud actually uh, started to tap into this this idea or actually this problem a long time ago when he was thinking about his own relationship to his father uh-huh. and realizing that although he had he admired his his father, there were other things at play, sort of shame and um 
also at times hatred and love, all these different things bubbling underneath the surface. Ah, the subconscious. The subconscious, you know, our our, our body, Freud, and and the subconscious. And that's when he decided to say to himself, well, okay, if I've got all these hidden mental processes, then free choice is either an illusion or at the very least it's playing second fiddle to the unconscious. Wow, there you go. So, you know, of course he didn't have neuroscience to back him up at that time, but he had an inkling that this was the case. (laughs) <laughs> Although he got ladies all wrong, I will say. Oh, yeah. For the record. Yeah, there is that. Yeah. Unfortunate. So, yeah, it forces us to ask the question, like, how does an idea even form? Because the way we feel it, the way we experience it is eureka, right? That light bulb going off above the head. Well, and, and that's why, why a lot of people will say, yeah, we do have free will because I feel like I made that choice, right? right. You, you look at some of these other ideas and it's, it maybe seems like it's a little more like a um, like when you turn on the hot water, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, the, the hot water comes out of the faucet. But there's really a lot going on behind the wall and under the house. Right. There was this guy named uh, Johann Frederick uh, Herbart, an 1824 German philosopher and psychologist. He argued that ideas might best be understood as a structured mathematical framework. So an idea is opposed by an opposite idea. You know, it's kind of like the, um, to, to use a very simple analogy, um, like the devil and the angel on the shoulder. Okay. You know, one idea is opposed by an opposite idea. And this idea. is happening underneath us, right? right? We, we're not aware of this. We're right. not conscious of this. Yeah. So they're not maybe on your shoulder. Maybe they're like hanging out in your armpits, you know. As they should. Yeah. And they're they're contrasting back and forth. The mm-hmm. devil and the angel are like, I think we should do this. I think we should do that. And uh, eventually one of these guys is beaten down below the threshold mm-hmm. um, of awareness. And uh, So and the, the idea, idea is sort of discounted, right? Yeah. When it runs contrary. But yeah. if there is another idea that that has sort of a network of support already, mm-hmm. some proof, right, of the pudding, then it rises to the top and it becomes something that we're aware of. Right. Which I think is really fascinating uh, that <laughs> you have these thoughts struggling at these deeper levels and they kind of get kicked out sometimes. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he coined the term uh, appreciative mass to indicate that an idea becomes conscious, not in isolation, mm-hmm. but only in assimilation with a com- with a complex of other ideas already in consciousness. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, again, that back to this idea that we have a finite amount of mental energy, which right. we talked about mm-hmm. with decision fatigue. And it would make sense that you would ta- tamp down what seemed contrary to yourself because your brain really has to sort of fold up in a sense. Cause can you imagine being completely aware at every single moment like if, if your brain flagged every stimuli that that was floating past i mean you would be you might actually be mad right yeah because i mean as we'll, we'll discuss a little more as, as the podcast unrolls there's a lot of stimuli mm-hmm. because on one, one level like right now we're just talking about the stuff going on inside your brain it's facing facing choices and weighing one choice against the other, so it's all the, the, the hard mathematical programming, if you will, beneath the operating system that yeah. we actually perceive or are. Uh, but then there's also going to be all this environmental stimuli coming at us and all these influences that are uh, taking hold of biolog- biological level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the, it's impossible for me to imagine like what that would be like if you were actually conscious of all these things. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, you know, we've talked about people who are uh, who engage in meditation, mm-hmm. like a lot of that is trying to become conscious of thought becoming conscious of how the environment is affecting you. But even that is only like if, if uh, you know, if, if we are experiencing this, this surface layer above an ocean of, mm-hmm. uh, of cognitive wheels and, and, uh, and gears, you know, even, even like deep 
practice meditation is not going to take you all the way down to the bottom. But what's so paradoxical about that is that if you're going to get to that sort of level of awareness, you have mm. to tamp down so much else, right? Yeah. Like your your brain is still going to have to batten down the hatches and say, oh, okay, that's just a dog barking or that's just this and that in order to become very aware of what your own, well, your own, not your own thoughts, but the important thoughts yeah. Like he, on some level, you're still having to cherry pick through the mind and figure out what's important and what's not important. Yeah. And so I think that's why I think this is so interesting because, because Eagleman sort of pointed to this too in, um, in the book and also in his talk that we're really the only, uh, animal <laughs> that has sort of like a computer, like if you can imagine a computer taking itself apart and taking the camera and aimed it at ourselves to figure out what in the world is going on. You mean, you obviously don't see this in the animal world. And right. if it were going on, we wouldn't be privy to it, right? Right. That's sort of part and parcel of why this is so fascinating and mysterious that we are trying at the end of the day to get to this question of who am I? Who is this person in my head talking to me in this consciousness? And am I really making the decisions in my life? And he talks again about the, our brains, again, battening down the hatches with these predictive models. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this before that, you know, this is really important from an evolutionary standpoint that we would have to come up with these predictive models of operating because every time that we came into a new situation, if every single bit of information that was beamed toward us was being judged, it would be really hard to react, right? right? So there are certain things that you have to model blueprint for yourself. So you come into a room, you expect a door, you expect a window, you expect this, so on and so forth. And he was actually talking about how our visual cortex is the model generator for that, for this. It receives data from the retina and then it sends its predictions based on past experience to the thalamus, which runs a report on the differences of what came in and what was expected. And this is really important because our expectations certainly color our perceptions um, and actually what we, we think is going on. So then the thalamus sends the report back to the visual cortex and it ups, updates its model. So it's constantly doing this. Right. And when you think about it that way, it's really cool, right? But on the other hand... Uh, what things are we missing? What things are we tamping down that are going on that, that that don't fit into the model that could perhaps give us a little bit more information about choices that we might or might not make if we had more access to that information? Yeah, the, the I mean, the whole visual realm of this alone is fascinating. I was reading the article you, see, you sent by Susan Blackmore. There was a whole section, too, where she was going into the way, uh, way sound. Uh, is uh, interpreted in the brain. But mm-hmm. just the, but there are like various theories about just how we see. Uh, not in terms of how the eyes work, but how yeah. the brain makes sense of that data, because our entire field of vision is not a precision instrument. Mm-hmm. There's like a, there's like a tiny area of of precision sight, and the rest is kind of vague sight. And Daniel Dennett, who we mentioned earlier, who's a, a philosopher, he's one of the the old firemen that rushed in to extinguish the blazes, or or at least deal with the blazes that have risen up in the wake of all this new neuroscientific data. Mm-hmm. But he, he makes a, a, a lot of uh, arguments based on the way our eyes work. And I thought one of the most interesting things that he pointed out was if you go to uh, a mirror mm-hmm. and look, you look at one eye and then you look at the other, and if you try and see your eyes moving from one eye to the next, you, you can't see it. The, the brain doesn't 
Does I read about this. Data. I was like, this is such a stoner mo- moment, like yeah. a self-induced did you stoner. Run, did you do like I do and you ran to the bathroom and tried it out for about 10 minutes? I didn't. I just had the moment <laughs> in my head. I was like, whoa, because you know that your brain does that, right? Yeah. But you you believe that everything that your eyes are telling you are the truth. Yeah. And so it creates this moment of, wow, okay, again, here I am questioning reality around me. Mm-hmm. If if my brain is has these blind spots or if things just aren't that important that it's not reporting things to me. Yeah. Which, of course, that leads us right into change blindness. This, yeah. this idea that, um, and then there are various studies along this, this line as well that, that have shown that you, you make minute changes to say picture between picture A and picture B. Mm-hmm. And people will, will inevitably, like they'll stare at it. And they'll eventually get it. They'll be like, oh, well, this is the difference. I, I feel like there are numerous examples of this too. various. Can you spot the difference between this picture and this right. picture? I think Huffington Post or somebody does that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the brain is just blind to it unless you actually center your processing on it for uh, for several seconds in the case of some of these. Yeah, it's it's very it's really fascinating. And right after this break, we're going to talk about how all of this uh, really serves your ego. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back. So, ego. Yeah, the big ego. And the illusion of consciousness. That's right. Implicit egotism is what we're talking about. Again, Eagleman is talking about this in the context of why we may or may not have free will. He talks about psychologist John Jones, who was looking to see if he could detect a pattern in alliterative romantic pairings. And, oh, yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I love this. He examined 15,000 public records from two counties in Georgia and Florida, and he saw that there was a pattern that emerged that was greater than chance that couples with the same first letter of their first names were getting hitched to one another. <laughs> I don't know about that. I know, I know. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was some, there was some information that I was like, you've got to be kidding. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like we could be so easily manipulated or self-manipulated on that level. But there are a ton of studies that are coming out. Like if your name is Dennis, then you're more likely to be a dentist well, <laughs> or Denise. Um, there's these associations yeah, happening. Yeah, I, th- I think it, w- it, uh, the study said that like it implied that I would have been more likely to like run a hardware store or something than become a red writer. So I don't know. Did you have an R? Yeah, R. Like it was something about it was something H and R's, R's and H's. Like both both uh, possibilities were equally kind of dreadful to me. Um, <laughs> but 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 then also it's, yeah, the whole you're more likely to marry somebody with the same letter of the well. No, this isn't happening. Like uh, you know, this isn't a great occurrence. Right, but it it's significant enough yeah. that it, it raises eyebrows. And Eagleman's saying this idea, this implicit egotism is, is a result of us being so enamored with ourselves that we can't help but find reflections of ourselves and others. And it could be behind the need to align ourselves with that familiar feeling on some unconscious level. Oh, yes. Um, and then this is also uh, where Rasputin comes in. The idea that if you tell yeah. somebody that they share a birthday with Rasputin, they're more likely to be sympathetic towards a Rasputin or or to behave more gregarious themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a university study. They took a bunch of college kids. They had this same essay. The only thing they fussed with is they, in the biographical data on the essay, Uh they matched it to each person's birthday. So the person reading it, and then, you know, half the class, it was 
it, it just had a random birthday that didn't match theirs. So, of course, the, the, the birthdays that match those students were more likely to say that Rasputin was a stand-up citizen or something <laughs> along those lines or report that on a biographical level, this guy was pretty great. Not necessarily yeah. like that, the content of the essay itself. So if one were to be deceptive when applying for a job, and I'm not arguing that one should because mm-hmm. you can get a lot of, do a lot of trouble for things like this, but if you were to lie and say that you had the same birthday as the person hiring you or as your boss, that would theoretically be beneficial. Yeah, but I mean, all this points back to the fact that we can't help but find commonalities mm-hmm. with one another. Right. Our brain is sort of hardwired to for these sort of confirmation biases, which we've talked about before. Yeah, it's I mean, we've talked before in the in the past. We form these stories. We're the center of the story. We're the center of this worldview, no matter what other characters yeah. are involved, be it God or just the, the neighbor across the street. It all ultimately comes down to what am I getting out of it? How does it relate to me? It's a story. There's a main character. I'm the main character. If there's another character in it, I need to know what the relationship is. And it, yeah. 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 It's funny because we can't, we try to inhabit someone else's perspective, but we can't help coloring that with our own perspective all the time and and on an unconscious level. Right. So if I'm like, Oh wow, I really love that blue and gray shirt that you're wearing right now. That's, that's one of my favorite colors. And all of a sudden I feel like, man, I'm really connecting with Robert today. He's, (laughs) you know, maybe not even understanding it's because you've got my favorite colors on. Uh, so all these things are, these, these underpinnings are, are holding together these ideas that rise to the top without us even knowing. So though it may feel sort of ridiculous that these couples are getting married on because mm-hmm. they have the first initials, they share that in their first names, there may be something to it in other instances, right? right. I mean, we'd, we'd like to believe that our romantic relationships are deeper than that. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't marry somebody just because she had the same first letter on her first name as me. I did it because her, her pupils were dilated. Oh, we'll yes, later. yes. Um, nice. nice I'm skipping that. ahead with that, but we'll, we'll explain that. <laughs> well, and, uh, Eagleman also talked about this too in, in an instance of what's called priming, which sort of creates this atmosphere in which, uh, it's more favorable to get the results that you want. Yep. And he talked about this at the Decatur Book Festival and saying that there was an experiment in which people were asked to talk about their mothers. Mm-hmm. They were given either like a, a warm beverage to drink or a cold beverage. And again, you would not think that we could be so easily manipulated. Those with warm beverages, they had warm memories of their mothers. Those with cold beverages, oh, it was, it was, it was snow cold. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was cold Breezeville. Well, pr- priming to, uh, to remind everybody, uh, we've, we've discussed it in some previous podcasts because it is one of the forms of memory at work in the human yeah. mind. There's not just one gear of memory up there. There are multiple gears. Memory is a, is a chorus of different, uh, cognitive elements. And priming is one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been uh, cases where an individual's brain has been damaged. And one form of memory, say, uh, remembering facts uh, mm-hmm. or, or something spatial or, or what have you, will be disabled, but the priming will still be active. So that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, your brain's sort of tagging certain things. But you've seen this over and over again. Yeah, political ads we've talked about before. And Engelman talks about a political ad uh, from when Bush and Gore were running against each other. Mm-hmm. And the Bush campaign had a... Uh, a really kind of funny commercial. Well, not funny, depending on your sense of humor there. But basically what goes across the screen, what flashes is rats. But what you find out as, as the word kind of zooms back around is that it's bureaucrats. It's actually oh. being broadcast on the television. But of course, your mind is already thinking rats. Huh. Negative. Eagleman also talked a little bit about uh, face blindness, which of fi- face blindness is one of those things. It's like 
trust any neuroscientist to bring it up in a conversation at least once because it's right. pretty fascinating when an area of the brain that deals with visual perception or facial features ends up not working. You see faces, but you don't identify those with the people. But there have been experiments that show that even uh, individuals with facial blindness, mm-hmm. there's some sort of priming memory is there. They can they can see it in like facial tics. Yeah, they see it activated, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. they can't necessarily recognize the person, but they see activity going on where the brain is saying, oh, okay, there's something there's something yeah. there. It, this ties in with the recent episode we did about false memories, mm-hmm. where you can have a memory that is false, think it is true, but somewhere in the cognitive depths, your brain knows it's not true. Mm-hmm. So this is an example of at the surface level, we don't know whose face that is. But deep down inside us, the brain knows. In all this, I keep coming back to a quote that I'm taking out of context from the Mahabharata, uh, where Krishna's, Krishna says, there is another intelligence beyond the mind, mm-hmm. where um, he, he's not talking about the illusion of free will exactly. But I keep coming back to that, the idea that that our mind, as we experience it, is this thin layer. And beyond that, there's this whole other system, this sort of shadow mind that's running the show. Well, it's funny you say that because in the book, Incognito, Eagleman talks about Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Kublai Khan. Ah, uh, and insanity to Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. That's yeah, the one. That's yes. the only yeah. part of it I know. That's yeah. still, that's, that's nice. Um, uh, but he talks about it as an example of us losing the center of ourselves and who is really the, the person who is creating or making decisions because he says who exactly wrote the poem and he says and he brings us up because obviously we know that Coleridge did but he says since Coleridge wrote it primarily under the influence of opium which allowed Coleridge to access his subconscious it wasn't the Coleridge that was aware that was the sober eye Coleridge so who wrote it Coleridge or the opium Uh, I'd say a little of both all right fair enough co-author opium I'll go with that. Okay. Let's talk about uh, dilating pupils. Yes. This is where we're really getting into the biological roots of things. The rat-like hindbrain backing up the brain that we experience. There's this one study that Eagleman mentions where people were, men particularly, were given, uh, <laughs> were given all these different photos of women and judged them on attractiveness. And the women with dilated pupils were the ones that they overwhelmingly liked. Yeah, like half of the photos contained women with dilated pupils. And when we say dilated pupils, they were not huge. And we're talking about a couple of millimeters, right? It's not something that you would be like, ah, dilated pupils, that one. So not like full on, I just came from the optometrist office and or a fish concert. (laughs) I just took off my granny glasses for my dilated eyes. So his point was that these men were scanning these faces within seconds and making these choices. Mm -hmm. And on some level, they were detecting what? That... She was really into the situation, right? That she was, uh, she was raring up. to go. Raring I mean, to this, go. Is, this is yeah. apparently a sign of sexual readiness, this dilated eyes. So huh. tuck that in the back of your, your brains, folks. Um, now, now we are not advocating, ladies, that you dilate your eyes before no. a big date because, uh, disaster will ensue when you try and drive. Yeah. Them yeah. Bella, the Belladonna, uh, opium, dilated eyes, granny glasses. Yeah. It's not really necessary. No, not right? at all. but that's just one aspect of why we do the things we do or we make the choices that we do. And Eagleman is talking about this again from an evolutionary perspective or biological perspective. Mm-hmm. We've seen this over and over again. Um, oh, there was the study we had with the strippers. Uh, yeah. Laptop I, dances. Yeah. From the, uh, was this the uh, university of Nevada, I believe. Yeah. And they found that, 
uh, strippers who were ovulating received higher tips than those who were not, <laughs> which which meant that on on a on a very basic biological level, the men liked the women who were better potential biological mates at any given moment. And we're talking about like an average of sixty eight dollars in tips, right? Yeah. As opposed to non ovulating women whose average was around like thirty five bucks. Yeah. So there's quite a difference. So both of these really point to the idea that especially when it comes to choices regarding mating and survival and these very primal biological things, there's somebody else calling the shots. I mean, that's kind of a an overstatement of the obvious to a certain extent, because there, there are no shortage of jokes about that, you know, about like men don't think with their brain, they think with their um, well, and they, they, they talk kind of, kind of deal. They also talk about in the book, um, David Eagleman talks about how women will select a partner when they are ovulating based on how much facial hair and how broad their shoulders are. Oh, because, um, because they want somebody who's husky and uh, protective and strong. Yeah. Or, yeah. They want the Incredible Hulk. Well, when, do, when is it then they want somebody who is kind and delicate? When they're not ovulating. Oh, okay. they're, they look for people who have softer features and having a broad chest just doesn't matter as much. The idea is that they're looking for someone who can nurture them more. His huh. words, not mine. Okay. Because when I read stuff like this, sometimes I have to raise my eyebrow in a big question mark because sometimes I think this, this is overstated to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, n- none of these are the the hard and fast rule by which uh, to live. But but again, it shows that that again that there's stuff going on at a biological level that if it's not robbing us of our free will completely, it's at least limiting the number of options. It's steering us towards certain choices, if not choosing them outright mm-hmm. under the surface. And it begs the question: so does free will really exist? And Eagleman says the argument for the existence of free will is essentially that it's a direct subjective experience. And I talked about this earlier. I feel like I just made a choice to scratch my arm. So therefore, I feel like I made a choice, the objective word being feel. But Eagleman brings up a really interesting study by, I believe he's a neuroscientist, Labette, who had a finger raising experiment. And in the 1960s, Benjamin Labette put electrodes on his test subject's head and asked them to lift their finger whenever they got the urge to do so. Oh, yes. Okay. And it seems pretty straightforward, Mm -hmm. right? They were given a timer and asked to note the exact movement that they felt the urge. People reported the urge about a quarter of a second before they actually moved their fingers. The curious part is that the EEG readout from the electrodes reported the activity in their brain rose about one full second before they actually felt the urge to move. So why is this important? I mean, because it's basically saying that there are parts of the brain that are making decisions well before you become conscious of it. Wow. So it's like John Stewart just made a funny joke. No, that joke was written six hours ago by like four dudes and four guys. It was already determined funny and yeah. served up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Approved by a committee, stamped, typed up, signed, handed over and delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Which all flies in the face of the argument that, well, I feel like I just made a choice to scratch my arm. Yeah. Well, you were kind of served up the information to do it. Yeah. You know, this other this other part of your brain that's working under the covers is not necessarily giving you a direct subjective experience. And it raises all sorts of interesting questions about then then what do we do with this information? How does it change the world we live in? I was checking out author R. Scott Baker's blog, Three Pound Brain. And he was talking about going to see a talk by uh, Daniel Dennett, who mentioned earlier, the mm-hmm. philosopher. And Dennett was discussing two recent studies by um, uh, a co- cooperation between the University of Minnesota and the University of British Columbia. And they found that college students, when exposed to arguments that we're not completely in charge mm-hmm. of our choices, that uh, free will is either an illusion or not near as big a factor in our choices as we think it is, yeah. they were more likely to cheat 
Uh, first on a mathematics test, then on, an, on another uh, form of test. But that, that raises an interesting question. If we were to live in a world where everyone is thinking, well, we're not really in charge. There's no such thing as free will. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just privy to all these other forces beneath the surface of things. Then am I more likely to make bad choices just because I don't feel like they're my choices? Well, and that's what Dennett and others argue, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't blame your brain. Yeah. Uh, or, or your lack of awareness for bad choices. Yeah, you, you can't be on trial for murder and say, my brain made me do it. Well, right. to a certain extent you can. But, but, but not, like, not across the board. We can't blame our brains because we still are our brains, even if there's a lot more going on, on, on underneath even the Even if we're at the periphery, really. Yeah. yeah. Eagleman was talking about this and he was, he brought up actually Tourette's and, uh, parasomnias. Oh, yes. As an example of what he calls automatism. And he's saying that someone with Tourette's could be said to have no free will since the neural circuitry is making decisions for him or her, right? Mm-hmm. And decisions that they're consciously aware of, they they can't do anything to stop it. And of course, when you've got a parasomnia, though, you're not quite aware. Right? And this is for people who didn't hear the parasomnia episode. This is crazy sleep. This is uh, sleep uh, eating, sleep, sleep eating, walking, extreme sleep. Yes. Um, some people who have RBD when actually act out their dreams, uh, which can be quite frightening. Sleep karate. Sleep karate yeah. is pretty much yeah. That yeah. that's the shorthand for that. Um, but it's really sort of redefining again what free will is. And what he says is that we should come up with something called the principle of sufficient automatism. Okay. So he says in legal parlance, automatism is is basically uh, someone doing something and the root cause for it is a biological process for which the person has little or no control over. His example would be, for instance, like a, a person isn't culpable for an accident if they had a seizure, right? And they right. caused a, a traffic accident. Interesting story. I know somebody who was in a traffic accident. Uh, and was caused by an individual who had a seizure, and the insurance company involved claimed act of God. Act of God. Act of God. It was a seizure. So it's got to be it? like a state by state thing in the yeah. U.S. Because I, yeah, I wonder if they all call it call it act of God, or or in this case, it's supposed to be called automatism. Uh huh. Hmm. Well, there you go. Well, see, that's a whole another podcast for uh, psycholinguism, right? Yeah. And how we ascribe meaning to language. So Egomon, though, he takes this example and he says, okay, the person didn't have a choice in the matter, right? right. The person that had the, the seizure, they didn't want to have a seizure and they didn't want to cause an accident. So he wonders if this biological process, quote, describe most or some would argue all of what's going on in our brains. Given the steering power of our genetics, childhood experiences, environmental toxins, hormones, neurotransmitters and neural circuitry, Enough of our decisions are beyond our explicit control that we arguably are not the ones in charge. In other words, free will may exist, but if it does, it has very little room in which to operate. So he says we should reframe it as this principle of sufficient automatism. Basically, the principle arises naturally from the understanding that free will, if it is, if it does exist, is only a small factor riding on top of enormous automated machinery. So small that we may be able to think about bad decisions being made in the same way that we think about any other physical process like diabetes or lung disease. I don't know. Is, is he is he uh, letting us off too easily? You think? Uh, I don't think. I mean, he he out. You know, in his book, he outright came out and said, "I'm not making the argument," and I don't think it, there's a, a risk mm-hmm. that we're going to unlock the doors on the prisons and say, "No, no, all you guys go free." There's no such thing as free will, so carry on. No, I, I agree, but I think he's still. Posing that question, do we have free will? And he's sort of saying, no, we don't, but possibly we could act on it within seconds. Well, this is me, not him. If we are perhaps all Zen meditation right. experts, right? And we could monitor every thought. Because when we get down to it, the experience is that we have free will. 
unless we really work on ourselves to change the way we experience the world. Mm-hmm. It's this weird paradox in that, in a way, we are the experience. You know, we are this. Uh, like, like, how do you change that? How, how do we do that? Could you become the the brain without this subsurface of perceived free will? I don't know. I don't know. I think that's why neuroscience is so fascinating, and I think that's that's why he leaves the the door open, even mm-hmm. though he says I pretty much side with other neuroscientists in saying that we don't necessarily have the free will, or at least it's not what we think it is. It's it's definitely a different creature than what we've been discussing. But he says that the, he feels like neuroscience is too young in, in uh, a field right now to really definitively answer this question. Yeah. And it does make me think back to the Blue Brain Project, which we've talked about, which is this... Uh, Building the computer, the digital model of the brain. Right. Yeah. Trying to re-engineer like our 100 billion neurons and see this detail at a cellular level and see if it can tell us the answer to these questions about who we are, if this consciousness, this I, does it really exist in this brain floating around? Yeah. Uh, as we mentioned before, I think it's it's like on one extreme, you can look at such revelations as um, terrifying. And on the other <laughs> side, you can look at it as enlightenment. And I think ultimately it's going to be ideally somewhere in between where to see the enlightening aspects of it, but also see the, the sobering aspects of it as well. So on one level, you can say, well, I'm not really completely in charge of all my choices. And look at that insofar as it keeps you from beating yourself up too much, but mm-hmm. also don't cling to it so much that you just run around doing whatever the heck enters your mind and obeying every impulse. Personally, I think that it's it's actually pretty liberating because I think that it gives us another way to think about our actions and perhaps even sort of back up a little bit and rethink them in a way that we make better choices. If at all possible, if that little millisecond window does exist Mm -hmm. where we can make decisions, the I, the consciousness, the we that are aware, then, hey, okay, even even better to know that that exists and and take hold of it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like to come back to Jon Stewart. When Jon Stewart reads a joke, he knows that that this was written hours ago by a team of writers. We still have to add the delivery. So there you go. Maybe there's a model there. I think there's a unifying theory of mine right there, and it has to do with Jon Stewart. Yeah. 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 I'm going to... That. Speaking of free will, some of our listeners had the free will to send us in some email. Some or did mail. they? Maybe. Maybe they, they were compelled. They follow our suggestions <laughs> in this creepy voice. What have you got there? You got one? Oh, yeah. I've got one. I thought you were waiting. Well, normally I read them, but I know you had one that was near and dear to your heart. Yeah, this is from Spencer, and he was talking about the podcast that we recently did about uh, psycholinguistics and our treatment of animals and eating animals. Uh, I believe it was called Don't Eat the Panda. Yes, Don't yeah. Eat the Panda. And he writes, um, and I'll skip around with this a little bit because it's longer. It was a very thoughtful email. It says, I myself am a meatitarian who has always struggled with the idea of not having to participate or even think about the process by which the animal went from breathing and living to sitting on my plate, all seasoned and delicious. For me personally, the internal struggle began when I was invited on a hunt with my cousin when I was 16. Um, I agreed enthusiastically and was taken to a farmer's field where we drove most of the way. And we, let me just scoot uh, for this a little bit. We spotted a group of deer who must have been suitable for shooting as my cousin directed oh, me to take I, aim. I thought he was going to shoot a cow or something because, like, farmers feel. Oh, okay, no, no, sorry. On. Yeah, okay. Bambi's coming into this, dude. Uh, my cousin directed me to take aim at a mature doe, which I did. Upon firing the shot and seeing that my actions had directly resulted in the struggle and imminent death of a beautiful animal, I immediately started crying. Since that day, I've always had an issue with the death of 
other animals for our enjoyment until that first bite of a juicy burger or other savory meat concoction that I mysteriously and suddenly forget I ever took issue with how I got how it got to my mouth. And then he talks about his wife who was in the 4-H beef club for many years and how when you're in the club, you basically raise a calf mm-hmm. and uh, you get to show it off and it's like this great experience and you've bonded with this animal. And he said that, of course, when the young 4-Hers are showing their calves at the auction, many inevitably start crying as their animals are led away for slaughter, whereupon everyone takes a few minutes to calm down and get ready for a delicious beef supper after the event. Thanks so much for the podcast. It always, ha- as promised, has blown my mind. So I thought that was just really interesting to, again, we're talking about the things that we do and the things that we think and how sometimes they're not quite squared together. So thank you very much, Spence, for for, uh, sending that to us. If you have uh, any thoughts you'd like to share with us, you got some some cool study you ran across, some idea that you think would make for a cool episode of this podcast, you should share it with us and with the other listeners. You can log on to Facebook and find us on there as Below the Mind. And we're also on Twitter as Below the Mind. And we update those uh, regularly with all sorts of cool stuff. And you can always send us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.